Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Casey Sepp, author of Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Casey will be our keynote speaker for this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors and will appear at a free event at Haynes Brand Theater in downtown Winston-Salem at 7 p.m. on Thursday, September 5th. Casey, we look forward to welcoming you to Winston-Salem, but for now, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Usually, I like to ask a few questions before we get to the description of the book, but your book is such a revelation to me, and the the legal case that examines, I think, is so sort of lost to the public consciousness before you brought it back to us, that I feel like I have to start out by asking you to tell us a little bit about the book and the legal case that inspired it. You know, the original story is a series of murders in a small town in Alabama uh, over a period of seven years. And after the last murder in 1977, the accused, uh, who was a Baptist minister, was gunned down at the funeral of his last victim. And he had been accused of killing family members for the insurance money. And at that funeral, he was gunned down by another relative. And the story of what happened is interesting enough that when it comes to the investigation of those original crimes and the insurance fraud, but incredibly, the same lawyer who had defended the reverend, the accused serial killer, that same lawyer then defended the vigilante who murdered his former client. And if that weren't enough, this is a case that Harper Lee got interested in and moved to this town and did a lot of investigative reporting, just the same way she had helped Capote for In Cold Blood. And she planned to write a book about the case. And so my book, the first two-thirds, is that a original crime story. And the last third is about the writer Harper Lee and her interest in true crime and her ambitions when it came to this story. And then, you know, the kind of more familiar story of why couldn't she write this book and some others she attempted to. Um, so it is it is one of these, you know, stranger than fiction, but of course it's, it's all fact. And, you know, the book is built from the original police investigations and from all the legal transcripts and from interviewing a lot of folks who worked those original cases and lived through these events at Harper Lee when she tried to write about them and friends and family of hers who I think not only shed light on her kind of interest in true crime and, and her work on a true crime book, but you know, more generally on her personality and, and her temperament as a writer and, and her place in our literary culture. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a, you know, you sort of explain this is important for readers to know that you, you need to buy this book because it's like two for the price of one. So there's this whole book about, <laughs> about the legal case. And then there's this whole book about Harper Lee. That's, and of course, they're very connected. Um, but, but, you know, just when you think you've kind of got a handle on the story, then you go into this, uh, you know, the Harper Lee story, which is a whole, almost a whole other narrative unto itself. This is your first book, but you've written pieces for The New Yorker, The New York Times, and and other outlets. How did you find the process of assembling a 300-page book differed from writing shorter pieces? Gosh, that's such a great question. I think when I started, I thought, oh, it's just a series of articles, and you put them together, and you know, I would do the same thing I had done before. And of course, it's not, because a book has to have an internal structure, and you have to be really judicious about how every section begins and ends, and how they fit together, and how the story builds on itself. 
Um, so I, I found it a little more difficult. Um, that said, I found it fun because I just got to do more of the things I love about writing, which is I read deeply about Alabama and true crime and the history of this region. And, you know, I got to do a lot of interviews with, with folks who lived through these events. And for me as a reporter, you know, getting to talk to people and getting to learn their stories and getting to learn about their lives is really one of the most rewarding things. And so for me, the fact that, you know, a feature article, you can interview, you know, a half dozen or a dozen people. And with the book, it was hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just getting to do a lot more of the, the things I love. And then, yeah, in terms of writing, I think it's it's so obvious, but it's just more. You know, you, you think you've figured out how a 6,000-word feature works or a 4,000-word review. And so you've, you've really just got to learn how to do that at a, at a larger scale when it comes to a book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You write, you, your book begins with a letter from the author um, that mentions your childhood admiration for Harper Lee and the fact that you, you went down to Alabama to report about um, the impending publication of Ghosts at a Watchman uh, for The New Yorker. How did you come across this story about Willie Maxwell? Yeah, so um, obviously for a lot of the folks listening, if they're Harper Lee fans, they remember that, you know, for decades, Harper Lee had said she was never going to publish another book after To Kill a Mockingbird. And in 2015, there was this shocking announcement that she would be publishing Ghosts at a Watchman. And I went down to report on that book. And, you know, there were questions about its provenance and about the folks who were managing her affairs. And, you know, that she had gotten older, so there were concerns about elder abuse. And, you know, so I was investigating all of those questions. And in an effort to do that, I really was trying to learn as much as I could about Harper Lee's new lawyer, but I got put in touch with the family of Tom Radney, who's the attorney at the heart book, who represented the Reverend for 10 years and then represented the vigilante who murdered him. And the Radney family had been trying to get back some materials that Tom Radney had loaned Harper Lee back when she was working on her own true crime book. You know, I was talking to them about the present day since he had died and their effort to get back these materials. But at some point, one of his granddaughters was talking about this case and telling me about his life as a lawyer and about Harper Lee's interest. And, you know, I, I sometimes jokingly say, you've got to be a pretty bad report starts talking about, you know, the minister accused of killing five family members for the insurance money who your granddaddy defended. And then the vigilante shot him, you know, the, the correct thing to say is tell me more about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, let's talk more. And I want to know more. And of course I did. And so many people in this part of Alabama who had met Harper Lee when she was working on her book and who had these incredible stories of what a great investigative reporter she was and just a wonderful conversationalist she was. And, it ran so counter to the idea I had of her, you know, if not a recluse, then antisocial and, you know, not interested in, in conversation or, or anything like that. And instead, you know, she was just a wonderful personality and, and capable of going into the homes of strangers and getting them to tell their life story. And I just felt like, you know, between the new version of her I could offer in the book and this incredible true crime story that, you know, let's be honest, it had gone underreported because for people who knew about it, they all knew Harper Lee was going to write it and nobody wanted to get scooped by Harper Lee. Right, so right. here was this great story she had been squatting on, and I was so grateful. I, I came to it through the Radneys, and, um, you know, Tom's a big part of the book, even though I never met him, but um, his family was, was certainly helpful. And his role in the story, I think, has been one of the most interesting things to talk to readers about, because oh. you might think the serial killer would be the most divisive character, but it turns out his lawyer is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I mean, people have a lot of different opinions about legal ethics and, you know, about 
about representation and then about the difference between civil litigation and criminal defense. And so I think that's been really rewarding, um, especially for book clubs who kind of debate, you know, and just in general want to talk more about his, his character. So it's, it's very sweet to me that, that he, in, in a, in a strange way was the, the source of the story for me. And, and Tom Radney, this lawyer you're talking about, was also a you know a Kennedy Democrat in Alabama in the 1950s and 60s, which to me just makes him that much more interesting a character. Yeah, it's certainly clear why Harper Lee would have been drawn to him. I think for me, you know, look, I, I had been doing journalism for almost a decade, and I had come across a lot of interesting stories and, and book ideas, actually, but none of them felt right. And, and for me, with Furious Hours, the real draw was getting to write about so many different things. So I love religion, and there's a little bit of religious history in the part of the book that's about the reverend, and I by politics. So, yeah, thanks for pointing it out. In addition to Tom's legal career, he had this incredible political career. And, you know, I get to talk about the 68 Democratic Convention, and I get to talk I think in ways that are, are really contemporary about political difference and how we yeah. relate to yeah. people in our communities who hold different views. And it's a pretty shocking story in the book of what happened to Tom and his family after the 68 convention, because, right, he was a Kennedy supporter and he tried to draft Ted Kennedy. And, you know, everybody in Alabama that year was supporting George Wallace. Yeah. And, you know, Tom's kind of friction with his, his contemporaries and with his neighbors, I think, is one of the kind of deep currents of the book. He's in some ways is a real idealist, but he's also just got the kind of ambition politicians have. And um, I think the tensions between what he hoped to do and and what he was able to do are just fruitful, again, to look at in in our kind of contemporary conversation about conservatism and particularly race politics. One of the ways that Tom was progressive is after the courts ordered integration, he was just a staunch supporter, and that was politically and in his personal life. So, um, you know, Harper Lee joked once that he thought of himself as a cross between Atticus Finch and Robert Redford, (laughs) and, you know, whether he was is a different question. And and I think that, again, you know, self-knowledge is a difficult thing, and she did didn't feel like Tom had it, but you know, I also think one of the most interesting parts of the book is Harper Lee's kind of knowledge of herself and what it means to be a writer if you're not publishing, and what it means to have written a book that decades later, later is still just the one thing you're known for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you write about this the fact that Harper Lee, in investigating this case, in some ways seemed to be taking a cue from her old friend. Truman Capote. As you mentioned, she'd helped him do some of the research for In Cold Blood many years before, and now she wanted to write her own nonfiction true crime book. Did you go back to In Cold Blood yourself before you started on on your book? I mean, you couldn't look at Harper Lee's true crime book, but did you go back to Capote and, and learn anything from him about how to put a book like this together? Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I'll tell you a funny story. When I first went back and reread In Cold Blood, my initial reaction was, oh my God, but I can't do this. He has so much interior knowledge of the criminals. He has so much interior knowledge of the victims. And of course, what you then realize of it is fabricated and massaged and exaggerated. Mm -hmm. And I think that the friendship between Capote and Lee is, to my mind, one of the most interesting relationships in the book. And the friction between them, I think most people think it has something to do with fame or money or awards. You know, she won the Pulitzer, he never did. But it's actually a deeper rift over ethics and journalism. 
you know, Harper Lee had a lot of objections to In Cold Blood. And having been there for so much of the reporting, she was in a better position than most people to know some of the decisions Capote made about, you know, where to massage the truth and where to stretch the facts and where to change the kind of supposed loyalty you might have to the victims toward the perpetrators. And so I think, you know, right, she in some ways was just, you know, borrowing from you know, she moved to this town and stayed in a motel just as they had out in Kansas and did the same kind of interviewing, gathered the same sort of documents. But I think in some really important ways, she was trying to do the kind of anti-in-cold blood. And she was really insistent to the folks she interviewed about how she just wanted the facts and she was doing old-fashioned journalism. And, you know, I, I think in some interesting, almost sibling-like ways, Capote and Lee, I think, you know, very clearly just loved one another as friends, but also, you know, had very different ideas about journalism and literary celebrity. And when Capote went around calling in cold blood a novel, I think she really chafed at that term and, you know, would have insisted there's nonfiction and there's novels and there's, you know, a, a, a very important wall between the two. And, you know, here was Capote saying, well, not really. And, you know, we can make it more interesting. And so for me, when I read in cold blood and I thought it reads like a novel, you then realize, well, part of the reason is because he's supplied additional mortar. Right. And, you know, the bricks fit together so nicely because he didn't mind doing it. And, you know, that's, those, those are, again, I think, fruitful questions for discussion. There's no, there's no rules about how to work as a nonfiction writer. And different writers, especially in true crime, make different decisions about, you know, how much to rely on invention or, you know, how how to relay uncertainty or supply kind of plot satisfactions where they didn't exist in real life. And I'm kind of on the Lee side of things, and, you know, the book is filled with footnotes and, um, you know, endnotes and explanations of who I talk to. And, and I think in, in really direct ways in the text, I'm, I'm careful to tell you what we can and can't know for sure. So I, I definitely fall down on the Lee side of things. Now, that doesn't mean I don't love In Cold Blood. <laughs> Yeah. I to write the book, but I'm I'm happy to read it, and I just think so long as we're, you know, being direct about how factual something is or what liberties we take, then that's fine. But you just want your readers to know, and I think the the thing that Harper Lee did not like about In Cold Blood is it, it hid those realities from the reader. Yeah. It pretended to be all fact when it wasn't. But it would be interesting to see an edition of In Cold Blood that has what you have at the end of your book, which is really the third book that you get when you buy this volume, which is your notes and your acknowledgments. I, you know, I'm a big fan of these things and I, I read through all of the notes. Um, and I, I really appreciated your letting us know like where you found out what you found out. And there's some stories kind of hidden in the notes. Um, and I wondered if maybe you would tell us one of them. Tell us, can you tell us about returning Jim Earnhardt's scrapbook? Oh God. Yeah. It's actually, I mean, gosh, God bless you for noticing. And then for me, it's really one of my favorite days working on the book. So, you know, earlier we were talking about how did I find this story? And I found it because the Radney family had been trying to get back these materials. And they thought that Harper Lee only had Tom Radney, the lawyer's materials. And it turned out she had actually kept several things from several people who had, you know, shared things with her about this case. And I had spent a lot of time interviewing this guy who was 22 when the Reverend was gunned down at that funeral. And he was a local newspaper reporter and he was sent to cover the funeral and he thought he was going to write this sleepy story. And then, of course, a man was gunned down in a funeral home chapel and it was shocking. Not surprisingly, his mother, who was proud as peaches for him with all these front page stories, had kept them all and made him a little scrap of, you know, 
the Reverend Maxwell story and all of his clippings and everything that had happened. And he had befriended Harper Lee when she was in town and he actually visited her in New York and they had, you know, a decades long friendship, but she never returned his mother's scrapbook. You know, she, she walked off with it in the fall of 77 and never returned it. And <laughs> there's a story at the end of the book of getting back Tom Ratty's materials. And I have to say for me as a reporter, it's like the closest I've ever felt to James Bond. You know, someone called me about coming <laughs> to Alabama to get a briefcase and, you know, I got in the car to go and, the first thing to come out of this briefcase is this red scrapbook, which is utterly meaningless to the Radney family. But I know right away, you know, my eyes just double in size and I knew right away it was Jim Earnhardt's notebook and or scrapbook. And I said, Oh my, I'd love to return it. He lives in Auburn these days. Um, not too far from where this all happened, but you know, I texted him and said, can I bring something by? I have something I think you want. And, you know, I show up and it's the scrapbook and we go through and handwriting and it's all the articles and it's just so sweet to him. And, you know, it had been in Harper Lee's possession that whole time. And, you know, I, he has, he has some kids and he had talked to them some about his friendship with her, but I think it just opened up another opportunity to say, you know, how close, how closely they had gotten to know one another and how optimistic he was about her book and, you know, how he had tried to help her. And so, yeah, that's a great story for me because here was the scrapbook she'd had for 40 years oh that, God. you know, he'd basically, you know, he just assumed he'd never get back. Maybe she'd lost it, you know, on the way home to New York or something like that. And there it was. There's actually one thing I'll tell you, you know, by that point in my reporting, I've been working on this book for three years and I but, you know, I had, I had really, you know, turned over every rock and I had found everything I was ever going to find. And there was exactly one thing in that scrapbook I had not been able to recover from the archives. Because, of course, I, like, went back and was looking at microfilm and looking at all the papers, like, bound in different, you know, small-town libraries. And Jim Earnhardt had saved the program from the Reverend's funeral. Wow. And you literally look down. He's, like, counted the number of speakers because he's going to be writing about it, so he wants to get it accurately. So it penciled down, you know, one side of the program. And there it was, tucked into the scrapbook. So, you know, there it was It was worth hunting down that scrapbook for that one thing. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, I understand writers who turn their books into memoirs. You know, they're, they're built from human relationships, and they're built just from serendipity and, you know, I would call them just, you know, moments of grace where something you think is totally lost is found and someone you don't think will talk to you will. And I didn't write my book that way, but, you know, obviously you hear the enthusiasm in my voice. I love to tell these stories. Yeah. And, and the one with Jim is just totally just a sweet one to me. And, um, yeah, so I, I just think it's totally, I think he was shocked when I walked in with it, but I'm happy to have it back. That's great. I mean, I think you're right. You, the book is not written like a memoir, but for readers who want that, read the footnotes, read the, the notes in the back, because you have sort of a little paragraph at the beginning of each chapter that explains, you know, where your main sources for that chapter are. And it's, they're, they're more narrative than readers might be expecting footnotes to be, which, which I enjoyed. Um, you, you start the narrative out. I mean, I think that's one of the great questions about a book like this is how do we start? Do you start with the dramatic murder? Do you start with Harper Lee? You start with a story about man subduing nature. Why did you decide to start out that way? You know, I think that, to me, you asked me if I reread In Cold Blood. I reread To Kill a Mockingbird a lot as I was working on this book. And there's this interesting claim, you know, it's a novel, so we don't think of it as advancing, advancing intellectual ideas. But there's this interesting claim at the beginning of Mockingbird that you can't understand how families relate to one another unless you go back to the Battle of Hastings. And, you know, what's going on today is always 
a consequence of what's happened in the past. And I think Harper Lee was really prescient. And I think that that's the kind of nonfiction I like. It's even when it's telling you a story about today, it's giving you the context and the deeper history of what happened. And for me, it was so clear that Lake Martin, which is one of these man-made reservoirs, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know these, these man-made lakes that these power companies filled when they dammed rivers and started these big hydroelectric power projects. It was so clear to me both that the natural landscape mattered and that the kind of metaphoric story of how these kinds of reservoirs were made is the violence I'm about to tell you in these murder stories. You know, actually, as beautiful as somewhere like Lake Martin is, it was infinitely destructive and very affluent people made decisions that changed the lives of many people in the communities that were flooded by the lake and it reoriented rural life around mechanized textile mills. And so it was a story I knew I needed to tell at some point and I realized I needed to tell it right away so that certain readers would know the tone of this book, that it was not just going to be blood and gore and autopsies. Even though this is a book about murder and fraud, it's the kind of book that's going to look at the natural landscape where it happened. So it's a little bit, I joke sometimes, it's a little bit like, you know, you have to be this tall to ride the ride. Because I didn't want readers to feel deceived, you know, to start with a murder and then pull back to that kind of deep history and someone think like, oh gosh, you know, she lured me in with the murder. And actually it's one of these other kinds of nonfiction books that's telling me history and context. So it felt like the most beautiful way both of teaching you about this very specific place where this all happened in eastern Alabama and about me as a writer, that that, that I was not going to be the kind of person who just latched onto the most sensational moment, but actually tried to look back and draw in as much history as possible. Um, and, you know, I just think on top of that, it's just such a beautiful story. And I, I saw Lake Martin and I was just struck by the natural beauty of Alabama. It's not really seen much outside the industrial cities like Birmingham or Montgomery. And, you know, here was this beautiful lake. And then someone early on told me the story about one of the cemeteries that had been flooded. Mm. And told me this story about how, you know, at a certain time of night, if you're on the lake, you can hear church bells ringing in the depths because, you know, there are these submerged structures. Yeah. And I just thought that's history, right? It's buried, but it doesn't disappear. And it comes back in these strange and sideways and unexpected and haunting ways. And, you know, then I read about how slowly the reservoir filled. Because if you think about it, it's not like turning on a bathtub and 10 minutes later you've got 44,000 acres of water. You know, it's, yeah. it's a very slow, deliberative process. And, you know, for readers who are patient, I, I mentioned the scene where farmers watch their watermelons rise. You know, mm. there they were in the fields planted. And then they just started to rise, you know, tiny bit by tiny bit. Yeah. And, you know, the moonshiners who drag their stills up. So I also just thought it was a beautiful way to start. And, and again, Alabama's got a very complicated and violent history, but it's also a beautiful part of the country. And I, I wanted folks to know right away that it was a book that was going to try and talk about everything, the, yeah. the beauty and the violence and today and yesterday. So that's, that's the long-winded explanation for no. why. But I, I also feel the need to say, you know, like, look, if you're not that kind of reader, which it takes all kinds, we're making it sound like it's a hundred pages of the history of the lake and hydroelectric power. And 
you know, it's it's a couple of pages, yeah. and 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 you can move through them, and and then I promise there is murder and fraud and Harper Lee too. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I loved about this book is these these sort of digressions and sidebars. And as you say, they're not long, but you go into topics, not just hydroelectric power, but but voodoo and the history of Alabama politics. And then the one that amazed me was you made the history of insurance and actuarial tables fascinating. Like, how did she do that? <laughs> when yeah, did- gosh. Well, I just think, I mean, the world is an interesting place. And, you know, if you've ever met an, an actuary, that person would tell you his or her job is interesting and meaningful. And, you know, same thing for life insurance. They they lead interesting lives. And like any financial market, it's interesting. And so it felt obvious to me that that needed to be a part of the book. Because, you know, I said earlier, the, the motive and the reason the police were so sure that this, this record his family members is because he held not just one but multiple life insurance policies on all of the deceased and some of them quite lucrative and you know get up to a half a million dollars in insurance fraud I just felt like readers were instinctively going to say well how did he do it and part of the how isn't just his ingenuity it's the it's the way the life insurance market worked at the time and right. in order to explain that to you I needed to tell you a little bit about the history um, so that's why that, that works that way. But yeah, again, I just think, you know, it's, it's really, it's like meat and three, you know, you're, you're building a dinner plate and you want to make sure you get the portions right. So, you know, yes, I knew I needed to do that, but I knew I, I couldn't expect a reader to want 20 pages of that. So right, it's just sure. a few. <laughs> sure. And, you know, there's a little bit more on the history of true crime because I think for a lot of people who, you know, binge on Netflix documentaries or they read true crime books, maybe they're not familiar with the kind of origins of that kind of writing. And so I thought, okay, here's one where I can give a few more pages because it's so popular and people are so interested, but I want to give an accurate and an ethical history. So them are longer or like voodoo where I just, yeah. you know, there is such a misunderstanding of that kind of system of belief. And, you know, I'm sure for folks listening who haven't read the book, they're like, why are they talking about voodoo? You know, on top of all of these allegations, what folks around this part of Alabama thought about the Reverend, why he got away with five murders is that he was a voodoo priest and that he was using his powers on the police and on juries and, you know, on people in the community. And so, you know, I don't think there's a lick of truth to that, but it felt important to tell you, well, why would people believe that? And what does voodoo practice? like in the in the rural south today so there's just another one of those and yeah i think digressions is a fine word or excursus i i that that's the fun of life and it's how i grew up hearing stories and histories told you know i i just feel like you know i'd be driving in the car with my dad and i would ask him you know who lives in that house and he would tell me who lived in that house, but also what their family did and, you know, who owned the farm first. And, you know, fast enough, you're back to Lord Baltimore and the original land grants in Maryland. And it's interesting. And it's, and it's you know, and it's deep and it's meaningful to the world as an interconnected place. And so I think, you know, the book works kind of the way I do, which, sure, you interview a lot of writers, some of whom can answer the question quickly and wittily. And, you know, your poor listeners are like, oh, my gosh, is she ever going to get back to, you know, why, why, why there's a voodoo excursus in her book? But, um, yeah, I just think, you know, those are the kinds of books I like to read that teach you not just about one thing, but a lot of things. And yeah. so um, it was the kind of book I tried to write. I mean, I found myself, I, I passed the book on to my wife and she's reading it right now. But if I hadn't been planning to pass it on to her, there would have been several places where I would have said, 
oh, you're not going to believe this. And they wouldn't all have been places that had to do with sort of the main story. But but in addition to these these kind of discursive um, historical background pieces that you do, uh, you also write in exquisite and beautiful detail about just daily life in Alabama in decades past. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how, how did you find out what it was like to shell peas and those kind of things. I mean, did you, did you spend time just kind of being in Alabama and trying to sort of soak up the, what daily life would have been like? Yeah. I mean, gosh, what a wonderful question, partly because it is true that, um, you know, again, the kind of invisible infrastructure of the book, there are so many people who I just interviewed for hours on end whose names, you know, just appear as like a one-liner in the notes. And I'm sure for some of them that was frustrating because they thought they were going to be like a heroic person in the book. And then they're just basically a footnote because it's the kind of deep, where you ask what it was like to be a police officer or a school teacher or um, a juror at that time or to work in the courthouse. And so I did spend a lot of time in Alabama. I rented a house the first year I was working on the book and then a house the second year. And, you know, I would do these long reporting trips and then a couple of, you know, week long or two weeks. And, you know, some of that was purposive. There was someone I needed to interview. There was a document I needed to look at in Coosa County or in Montgomery or in Birmingham. But a lot of it was just talking to people who had known Harper Lee or who had known the Reverend or who had known Tom Radney and just ask about their lives. And, you know, where do they go to college? What do their parents do? And, you know, I did that with living sources just over and over and over again. Some people who were central to the story and some people who were totally peripheral, like you'd be at a Waffle House and you would just talk to your, how long have you lived here? Where's your family from? You know, do you remember this case? And, you know, then some of it more intentional key players and people who were more directly involved. And I think the real trick, though, is on top of all that, you have to figure out a way to do it for the decades past. And in my case, I was really lucky. There are good WPA files. So the Works Progress Administration, they sent out writers to interview kind of everyday people and collect folklore and oral histories. There's really good WPA records for Alabama. And interestingly enough, they're available online. They're digitized. And, you know, you can really just read a lot and assimilate a lot of information about life. And there's also a couple of incredible books like um, James Agee, when he wrote Let Us Now, Famous Men, he was down in Alabama talking to sharecroppers. And so there are some Big books like that, or All God's Danger, this uh, uh, interesting book about a black sharecropper rebellion, actually right in Tallapoosa County, and that gives you really detailed accounts of life built from oral histories and interviews. But um, there are also a couple I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge some of the kind of amateur historians who gathered these things, and there are really great books. I bet they exist for the Carolinas, too. They're heritage books and local history committees gathered, you know, little historical societies. And they did family histories, and they wrote up histories of church schools and grocery stores. And the heritage books for Coosa County and Tallapoosa County gave me so many beautiful vignettes of rural life. And sometimes I would then use those for conversation, you know, like shelling peas or making or just the way the cycles of the crops worked. But um, it was just great to read them and to hear people's voices and to hear people talking about their their lives. And I think that came quite naturally for me. I, I grew up in a pretty rural part of Maryland. And, you know, I just think the kinds of lives that don't make the front page are really interesting and meaningful. And um, the funny thing is there's real continuity to it. So obviously, you know, shelling peas 
it's it's not like making a phone call where today we do it on a cell phone and you know a hundred years ago it was the the telephonic line you know shelling peas unless you're talking about mechanized industrial agriculture it's done the same way you know i i can peas the way my great grandmother did yeah, and yeah. you know you go to the garden and i think there is a it's just another way I love this book and I love this story because I felt like I was getting to write about the kinds of places that are meaningful to me and the kinds of stories that um, aren't always memorialized. Um, so that that's part of the way I did it was just spending time down there, but also um, looking for those kind of lesser known um, oral histories and, and those kind of amateur, um, amateur, I, I, should, I don't mean that in the pejorative sense, non-professionals. Because yeah. um, actually, amateurs are often better at it. <laughs> yeah. You know, they they got them, but yeah, you know, the WPA writers. You know, they didn't think they needed to just talk to the banker. They talked to the bank clerks right. or the sharecroppers or um, you know the domestic workers. And so there's there's really beautiful history there. And and I'm just glad Alabama um, is one of these places where the records are available. So the newspapers were often pretty discriminatory, and the newspapers were mostly you know white press writing about white lives the WPA files and some of those heritage books are, um, you know, pretty egalitarian and, and they include the kinds of life I wanted to try and bring to life in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Most of us, um, you spent some time in Monroeville and, and most of us conjure up this image of Monroeville, Alabama, the town that Harper Lee grew up in as a, a place that's deeply rooted in her novel to kill a mockingbird. And we see it you know, if you say, ask people, what's Monroeville like? We all see the Hollywood film directed by Robert Mulligan. But now I have this new vision of Monroeville, which is you sitting in the huddle house drinking coffee with the stack of books on the end of the table. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it's the only place open after nine. So, and, so right, you know, tell, it's incredibly affordable. <laughs> tell us a little bit about what Monroeville is like in 2019. Yeah, I mean, I I loved my time in in Monroeville, and it's it's still a beautiful town. And I think that you know, I had that sense it was going to be like walking into the film. And you know, the first thing to say right away, and, and Harper Lee to just sort of deflate people who claim that part of the film was filmed at their house. Most of that movie was shot on a Hollywood backlot right, because Monroeville right. had already changed. So much by the time the novel came out that, you know, they couldn't conjure Depression Era Alabama because there were already fast food chains and highways and, you know, sprawl, basically. And so I think that it's complicated and it's a kind of cauldron for assessing our feelings of nostalgia and, and thinking about kind of how even rural life has changed. But that said, it's a beautiful town. And because the novel has made it so prominent, there is a local uh, history museum and they've restored the courtroom to look like the one in the in the film mm. which is how it originally looked but you know court is actually conducted next door in a in a kind of modern mid-century building but you can walk around the courthouse square you can do a walking tour you can kind of appreciate the the psychogeography of a writer like Harper Lee but I think one of the interesting things for me talking to people about Harper Lee is it's like anything, you know, not surprisingly, it's a more complicated story and a more complicated relationship. And Harper Lee really resented the way the town tried to kind of commodify her novel and, yeah. you know, 
characters and her story. Now, again, to be fair to the people of Monroeville, obviously they felt like that's what she had done to them. (laughs) You know, it's not, it's not like makeup is is a totally invented town. It really does resemble Monroeville and, you know, people recognize themselves in the book now some people recognize themselves even though they're not memorialized, but you know, it was a complicated relationship and she and her sisters navigated it in their lifetime. And now I think her heirs and her kind of literary estate are figuring out how to do that. But you know, I just think it's like Walden pond or the Lake district or, um, you know, the parsonage of the Brontes. And there's a reason people are drawn to Monroeville and I was one of them. I'd always wanted to see it. I was that assignment from the New Yorker so I could go down and spend time there. You know, it's a special place and it it really is just an important map dot in our kind of, you know, national literary landscape. They might start to ask themselves about racial equality in that town and whether it's changed at all and and um, they they might wonder, you know, why Monroe County has been so resistant to the lynching memorialization project where other Alabama immediately memorialized victims of racial violence. And, you know, I think there are tensions that have to do with Harper Lee and that have to do with, you know, life in America today that um, are worth thinking about. You know, I think it would be a shame to go and give in exclusively to a nostalgia about the novel, because, of course, one of the reasons that novel is so beloved is that it challenges us to be better and it challenges us to imagine a better world and to get to know people who are different from us and to have conversations that are difficult for us. Um, so, you know, I, I think the Huddle House is a perfectly fine place to do that. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, they stage a production of the, the theatrical adaptation of Mockingbird every year, which I would encourage people to do. But it really is a special place, but I just think Harper Lee would want you to remember, you know, it's not a time capsule. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a real American yeah. place, and it could be better. And one of the reasons she wrote that novel was, you know, not just to preserve a way of life she had known, but to try and make the next generation there better off right. and, and more thoughtful and more more considerate. So you mentioned the, the idea of race relations in, in Monroeville, but obviously race plays a big part in this book. Um, and especially race with relation to the judicial system in the South. Um, I, I have a friend who spent his summer um, working at the Capitol Public Defender's Office in Georgia, and he told me, and sadly I wasn't very surprised by this, that almost everybody on death row in Georgia is African American, and whites who committed similar crimes are not on death row. Um, what, what lessons do you think there are to be learned about race and justice in Furious Hours? Yeah, what a what a wonderful and profound question, and one we should be asking about every book, not just those explicitly about race. Because, of course, one of the kind of straightforward tricks that you know our our culture allows us to play is to pretend that race isn't involved in you know most social interactions and most you know structural inequalities in our society. And yeah, I mean, Furious Hours is an interesting story, and I think that for Harper Lee, it's one of the reasons she found it hard to write about this case because. Oddly enough, the the stories in Furious Hours are mostly about two black men who some would say got away with murder. And in both cases, they, they faced um, all white juries and they were acquitted. And, you know, there are complicated reasons for that. And, you know, again, vigilantism is, is a very um, old moral conundrum in the South. Obviously, you know, I, I brought up lynching earlier. Extrajudicial justice had been practiced around the South, and plenty of juries had decided not to convict 
people who had obviously committed violent crimes and even murders. So it's it's not totally aberrant, but I think the race relations in Furious interesting because they do they do just cut against the kind of expectations of the time, both the seventies and the sixties when these cases were taking place. And you know, it's 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 interesting too. We were talking about the insurance fraud and I, I tell some stories in the book about just how much fraud was perpetuated by the insurance companies against black clients. Yeah. Yeah. So companies that refused to sell to blacks, there were companies that um, practiced price gouging or worse, you know, having sold a policy and let someone pay into it their whole life long, their family the benefits. So an interesting thing about the reverend is, you know, here he was exploiting these companies, but he was once defended by one of Alabama's most prominent civil rights attorneys, and that guy, Fred Gray, took the case because he was trying to make a civil rights argument about the discrimination practiced by the insurance companies. Right. Now, again, the Reverend Maxwell was the most unlikely candidate for a civil <laughs> rights claim in this in this case, but you can see why a civil rights lawyer would be looking for a case. There was a reverend accused of murdering his wife, and let's be clear, he had already been acquitted of murdering the first, so this is the second dead wife. He's been, you know, the lead suspect in her murder, so an unlikely candidate, but these kinds of cases were important to bring forward. And indeed, you know, 50 years later, there were multi-billion dollar settlements to reward black clients for these policies. So it's messy and it's complicated. And I think, you know, one of the reasons, again, the idea that Harper Lee was, you know, her second book was going to be a story about a black serial killer, which is statistically one of the most unlikely to walk the face of the earth, a black serial killer, black on black crime, and the case of a black defendant who was acquitted by an all white jury. It's just an unlikely story. And yes. again, it's not statistically significant ones or the kinds of true crime stories that can really bring to light systemic issues in our justice system. It's actually not one. Now, I think that kind of deliberately by telling you about the kinds of true crime books that do well, which actually are the statistically kind of misrepresentative ones, like in Cold Blood. Yeah. You know, a, a, a murder of a whole white family, strangers in their own home, is just, you know, it's our worst nightmare for some folks, but it's not a statistically representative crime. You know, murder victims typically black, they're lower income, they're murdered by someone who knows them. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, in that way, I, I try to make that explicit in the book, but the cases themselves, again, it's one of the deep, strange things about Harper Lee's interest in this case. You know, it's a good gothic story in the sense of, right, it's a reverend accused of killing, you know, two wives, a brother, a nephew, and a stepdaughter. So it feels like a good story, a sensational one. Um, but it's a tricky one if you're famous for being a writer who lays bare the racial injustices of our criminal justice system. Yeah got to be doing a lot of fancy footwork to explain the peculiarities of these cases and how the justice system interacted with these two black defendants in ways that are different typically do. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it was interesting to me because you could, you could describe this case as um, there's a miscarriage of justice. There's a civil rights lawyer. There's a black defendant. There's a white jury. We hear all of those things, and we create a certain narrative in our mind. And the narrative that actually plays out is completely different from the one that we have created. Yeah, when totally. We hear those yeah. you know. Um, right. Exactly. I think you know. Probably. I, I don't think it's spoiling it because this book doesn't operate that kind of suspense. And, no. you know, I think we were talking about the prologue. And so I kind of tell you what you need to know. But yes, I mean, the, the truth is, this is the kind of story that like the Innocence Project would be confronted 
might expect. And outcomes of these actual trials are so advantageous to the black men who are facing juries and judges that, yeah, it's a little odd. Yeah. Uh, yeah look at cases like this and, and try and figure out how they fit into a story like one that is the, the gross inequality in our justice system about, you know, who gets charged with crimes, who gets convicted of crimes, how disparate their sentences. So, yeah, I mean, I think that in general, it's good to look at Harper Lee's legacy because it's so tied up in the story we tell about civil rights and race relations. And I think her own politics are a little more complicated than, than any have thought before the book came out, but um, yeah, the cases themselves is just sort of tricky. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that our listeners will come and hear you talk more about this. There's so much to say about this book. We could talk for a long, long time, um, but we're about done with our time here. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, and hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into you and to your life as a writer. So if you're ready, we will begin. Sure, what? it feels a little like speed dating. It I'm is, worried that's, there's a that's exactly, this is the speed, the speed round. <laughs> <laughs> what word do you love to work into your writing? Gratitude. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Obvious. Where is your favorite place to write? Uh, anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that makes the next question difficult, because the next question is, where could you never write? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh... Nowhere. I just think it's one of the wonderful things about it. You know, you can always have a notebook. You can always be writing in your head. Yeah. I grew up kind of writing stories on the lawnmower while I was mowing the grass. Mm. So, yeah, going to go with nowhere. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Split infinitive. What was the first book you remember reading? The Bible. What are you reading now? I'm reading a biography of Thomas Edison. It's cruel to bring it up because it won't be out until October. What book would you like to have written? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Marilyn Robinson, and and I would love to have written any of her uh, Gilead novels. Yeah. It won't surprise you to know that many people answer that question with To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, oh, funny. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love it, but no, I think that... Um, yeah, those uh, Gilead, Lila, Home, yeah. they're just extraordinary and theologically sophisticated. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Gosh, I mean, a novel. I just don't have the narrative engine for fiction, but I, I love novels, and I think they're beautiful and eternal, and I wish I could write one. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I think that the highest compliment, and a few people have said it to me, is that my book made them want to read other books. Yeah. And sometimes that's specifically To Kill a Mockingbird or In Cold Blood or any of the books I have in the notes. But um, just the idea that reading my book reminded them of how wonderful reading can be and what yeah. we can learn from books. And um, I think that's probably just just one of the most things you can tell a writer. This has been Inside the Writer Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gatherings place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, including this year's 15th annual Festival of Books and Authors on September 5th through 8th, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Casey Sepp, whose book Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee is available wherever books are sold. 
and Casey will be happy to sign a copy for you when she appears at the Bookmarks Festival on September 5th as our keynote speaker at 7 p.m. in Haynes Brand Theater in downtown Winston-Salem. Casey, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. In the next few episodes, I'll be talking to more writers who are appearing at this year's Bookmarks Festival. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Music